On the line with us today, we've got Josh Shepard. That's a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And his book is Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. And when, when, well, first of all, let me ask you this, Josh, why did you write this book? I just feel that uh, public media has played this central role in democratic deliberation and 20th century media. Uh, and it also models possibilities for how technology might be used without profit motives. And it just felt right to uh, really investigate that with a book on its origins and why people became so invested in nonprofit media. And you, now you say victory that's in the title, the victory of public broadcasting. Uh, victory, well, I guess a couple of ways to phrase this. A victory over what? And what were the biggest stumbling blocks? that you found uh, for public broadcasting in its early days? Yeah, the victory line is a little bit of a reference to scholarship in the field that had previously framed the history of educational radio, uh, which was the previous version before public media in the U.S., as having been a kind of failure. <laughs> so there's mm -hmm. this long-time story that educational media had disappeared and they hadn't done well, uh, and what I found through a lot of years of archive work was that it was actually uh, quite productive. Yeah, because I'm old enough to remember. I don't. I don't remember it being attached to radio, but educational TV was a phrase that uh, I think might have been in in vogue uh, in the '60s, '50s, and '60s in that era. I'm not sure, but uh, I remember that. And then, of course, it became public. I don't know. Is there something negative about saying something is educational or is that highly psychological or something? Yeah, this gets to your last question. Uh, educational radio uh, was very high concept. It wanted equal access to education. People were invested in inventing genres that were essentially instructional, uh, less than entertainment. Uh, but they were terrible at it. Technically, <laughs> the craft of radio was mastered in the commercial networks in the U.S. Sure. And educational media was very focused on, you know, extending classroom teaching uh, to any possible person who wanted it through technology. But they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how do you make good conversational media, you know, or how do you make it fun along right. with that. So, um you know, the way that educational media began evolved to public media uh, with the introduction of things like educational entertainment, uh, research and development, and just trial and error of broadcasting from early live lectures of home economics or something like that to cooking shows. And you end up with Julia Child much later in the same tradition with the genres of education, but then modeled for people to actually want to learn from the, the programming. Right. Well, what's you know what surprised you the most as you, as you researched this topic? What, what did you have surprises, or maybe that should be the question? Yeah, there's a few surprises along the way uh, because it was such a concept heavy endeavor in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and then into the New Deal, um, and because it was so weak in practice, they had to develop methodologies to understand when it worked and when it didn't. And along the way, its researchers uh, began to invent things like public policy research for the country, which was a kind of audience analysis to see what different demographic groups thought about what they were hearing. 
And so uh, in order to make the service better and better as educational media, uh, you get the origins of like communication departments in forms of grant writing that we still associate, you know, in social sciences. Uh, and they bring in like big thinkers, famous thinkers like Marshall McLuhan and Theodore Adorno to consult with. And they always inevitably kick them off the project because <laughs> they have these more speculative visions for what media means than the on the ground things that they were trying to learn. Yeah, that's, we're talking with Josh Shepard, the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. And, you know, how, how does, um, you know, public broadcasting now is, is pretty well established, but, and I know this wasn't really the focus of your book, but I, I imagine you looked at, at things across the, the board. How does uh, public broadcasting in this country compare to other nations that have public broadcasting or, or whatever they choose to call it? Yeah, the American model is very idiosyncratic because it begins with the privatization of media in 1934 with what they call the Communications Act. So uh, put differently, uh, NBC and CBS became the default public in this country while they were building like the BBC in other countries. And, you know, between the 30s and today, you get different variations of what we would call public service media or non-commercial media. Sometimes it's like state-based media, which is what no one wants, which is a propaganda filter, you mm -hmm. know, for the government, whatever country it might be in. Right. And then you get other forms of community media, which are very uh, community engaged and talk about local issues and are really great documentary evidence of localism. Um, you know, and you get educational media that's still instructional and a little better than it was in the 1920s. And then when you get the public media, what you have is essentially a government agency with a degree of separation from government interference that's then facilitated through block grants into local affiliates. And then they pick up programming from different producers and then, of course, NPR as well. So public media is uh, a really great experiment. Um, and it's a continuing experiment in ways that we could have a certain kind of professionalism without a profit motive while understanding local culture and engaging with news and providing insight into American culture. Um, yeah. Now, you, you, you've, uh, we're talking with uh, Josh Shepard, who's written a book about public broadcasting, and I'm thinking the, the heroes or, or some of the people that played a big part in this coming uh, to be, uh, they're in your book. Can you mention a couple of them that uh, come to your mind? And, and, you know, obviously we probably don't know these names. They're not household names, but they did a lot. So one of my favorite stories, which begins the book, is there was a guy in the very early days at the University of Iowa named Carl Menzer. And at the time, there was no university support where most of the stations were based that became public media later. And to keep a frequency license with uh, the government, uh, the FCC after 1934 and the FRC, Federal Radio Council and Associated, before then, uh, they had to maintain a certain number of hours per day. It's still true. It's still part of the licensing. And uh, he had no help whatsoever. So he would pick up a violin and he would just play by himself on the violin for hours and hours to farmers in Iowa, not even knowing who was listening. And that was the way that they kept their license. And then somewhere along the way, he realized 
what if I could just trade recordings of good educational programming with other Big Ten you know, uh, stations, so other universities in the Midwest? And so they started trading with University of Illinois, Ohio State, uh, also Iowa State and Ames had a great station, Minnesota, Wisconsin. And that becomes the beginning of what they call the bicycle network in public media, which is usually regarded as the start of an alternative nonprofit network, similar to the commercial networks have all their affiliates. There was an affiliate network for distribution of quality programming. And that was around uh, 1951 uh, that it was in motion. So Menzer goes back to the late 1920s and he's there for all of it until the early 50s when they begin to form uh, the Bicycle Network with non-commercial media. Uh, another great character is a guy named Charles Seatman, who I'm sure that almost no one knows the name of. And he was the BBC director of talks and they brought him over with a Rockefeller Foundation grant in 1936 after he was noted by Edward R. Murrow, who had been at the BBC visiting uh, on a Rockefeller grant. And they sent him all around the country to the different educational stations, which were still fledgling. And he was uh, basically offended by the quality of the programming compared to the BBC because he thought it would be an equivalent or a parallel. Uh, and he writes these scathing reports not only about how bad the stations are, uh, but how much he disliked the people <laughs> that he's meeting at the stations. But, and this is a big but for the story, uh, he actually turns out to have been a very meticulous and helpful uh, person in just organizing uh, you know, the infrastructure for non-commercial media. And he becomes like a beloved figure and he ends up forming NYU's famous communication department in the late 1940s and stays in America. But so if he's this character, you go through his personal letters in the archive uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's just, I wish I could write things that cutting. <laughs> I wish I could write <laughs> things that rude that were so funny at the same time. Uh, but then the irony is he becomes almost like the mentor to an entire generation of people who built public media in the country, even though he was writing those things. So all was forgiven for, for him. Right. Well, yeah. That's great. Um, you know, one of the things we, we you know, kind of figure on with uh, uh, public broadcasting today is, you know, NPR today is, is, a, is well, the success story, I think, uh, because radio has seen declines in audience and advertising. But NPR just, just you know, seems to grow. And, and certainly is, is, you know, many could tell other stories about that. But you, you mentioned in your book that radio was only added to that pivotal 67 Public Television Act. What, at the last second? What was that about? Yeah, for many years, this was kind of an apocryphal story uh, in public media, was that it was originally the Public Television Act under the Johnson administration. And what happened was at the last second, they decided to add radio and it became Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. And then by 69 and 70, we have NPR and PBS uh, or reverse PBS and NPR uh, in terms of dates. And so uh, I actually found the original letter finally in the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Archive in Austin, in which they scratched out the word tele uh, television and wrote broadcasting in each line within the proto version of the bill. And I think what had happened was uh, the Ford Foundation really invested the equivalent of billions of dollars in educational television in the 1950s and 60s 
um, after the FCC had allocated what they called protected frequencies so that there was no competition with commercial broadcasters in 1952. And I think all the momentum was just behind television as the new medium, as they were getting into the 60s. And uh, they had something called National Educational Television, NET, uh, that had run programs not only on non-commercial stations, but also even on CBS, you know, and other kinds of commercial stations. So that was seen as a success by the time they actually passed the policy. But National um, Educational Radio uh, was less expensive. Uh, It had produced multiple generations of uh, great correspondence and journalism uh, in commercial media itself. Uh, And it was relatively easy to maintain. So they did expand the bill at the last second. And you can actually see the original lines rewritten. (laughs) So at the very last second, by which something like an NPR became possible. And I I guess that's not, I I won't say too surprising, but television by that time had become dominant, you know, in the 60s. I mean, radio, we know, was changed. Uh, commercial radio, of course, I'm talking about, from being an entertainment medium to uh, music or news, talk, whatever the formation is. But, um, you know, TV was always seemed to have the upper hand by that time. So good that they did include that, uh, as as we now know, uh, because of, of what's well transpired in, in over the last few decades. Um, Josh, we you know, we're talking with Josh Shepard, the... Uh, Professor of Media Media Studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, you know, then this is totally off um, off your book, but I'm just uh, throw this at you. Could newspapers benefit from the same model developed by public broadcasting? And I'm saying that as at a time as obviously we're seeing them uh, languishing and troubled, and you know all that. Yeah, I, so. In the early days of radio and commercial radio, newspapers actually tended to own a lot of the stations. And then the educational stations, if they survived in the early days, were usually out of universities. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen a little bit of a reversal on that. I think in Chicago, um, didn't uh, the Sun-Times get signed by or, or signed yeah. on by uh, non-commercial right. media? Right. With, uh, I think it was WBEZ or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the public radio there. Right. Yeah, I've got a colleague at uh, University of Pennsylvania named Victor Picard who thinks there should be a similar kind of um, like corporation for public broadcasting steward that houses the money and then uh, delegates grants uh, based upon need for journalism. So there is some talk about this um, in the, the research sphere. And so do I think it could work? I mean, I'm not a journalist. I'm a humanist <laughs> who writes histories. <laughs> Uh, But I think that uh, one thing that public media points to that uh, keeps it endeared, not only to one or two political perspectives, but really nationally, is the fact that there are affiliates like in Peoria Mm -hmm. um, or Bradley uh, that serve local news. And so the localism component of non-commercial media is sometimes the only coverage that we see funded uh, in certain parts of the country, especially very rural parts. You think of like rural Panhandle, Nebraska or something, you're probably just looking at a couple of reporters there with non-commercial media and public media or nothing. There's like, there's nothing in between really because uh, there's no financial incentive uh, to do that coverage. So I think, yeah, I mean, the, the model for public media and its focus on people's lives and how they talk about their lives 
and the importance of the history and people within the communities that they're serving uh, keep it quite viable. Well, that, that that's good to know because, yeah, the uh, the success and as you say, the victory of, of public broadcasting is is a great story. And um, what's what's your next? Well, I was going to ask you um, your uh, little bio there on the on the back cover says you're director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. What is that, Josh? Well, believe it or not, I, I have two hats. Uh, the other one is that I work with the Library of Congress Recording Preservation Board and what they call the Recording Sound Section, which is just basically the division of the Library of Congress that does recorded sound history. And I organize public projects for them uh, that we preserve different parts of non-commercial media history that has its own division though, called the American Archives of Public Broadcasting, but commercial media history, um, different kinds of oral histories filter through. And you really find a lot of amazing American history, especially from groups who didn't leave what we call paper trails in the history world. So personal letters, they weren't covered by the newspapers, but you see like community organizing, you see these different experiences that weren't covered by the news, and they all had talk shows or they had community call-in shows. <clears throat> and we love to preserve those things because it gives us documentary evidence about all the kinds of American history, especially ones that you find in sound. And then the other side of that too is, uh, is I'm a paper historian. I go through papers, mm -hmm. but just the intonation of voice and what you pick up, the intangibles of sound and that what you learn about people by listening to them. I find to be fascinating as well. So the Sound Submissions Project is a curatorial project of our broader project, which is the Radio Preservation Task Force of the Library of Congress. And we put together, after a bunch of years of working with legal, we put together a capacity uh, for people to donate sound history to the Library of Congress that can then be studied in the recorded sound reading room at the Library of Congress on Capitol Hill. You know, that's fascinating because... I, and I've become a, an interested a, a fan, I guess you could say, of um, what do they call it? the golden age of radio? You know, this shadow and uh, dragnet and all that stuff. But the the what I notice or, or observe, and I don't think this is odd at all, but it's just the way it is. It's hard to you know, and of course the internet is tremendous because you can find things there. But like a museum can show a movie, can show a, a piece, a statue, a piece of art, um, a book. But radio, is, it's a sort of a, like, you know, you got to put speakers on, you know, headphones on or something like that. And, you know, and it's what is it, one on one? You know, it, there's definitely difficulties to uh, communicating that history that you're talking about. Yeah, there's a few uh, issues yeah. there. I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, I don't know how they go about doing that. Is it online for the Library of Congress, or is that yet to be developed? Yeah, so so the main issue is the obsolescence of older recording technologies, like reel-to-reels mm -hmm. or something like that. And so sure. how do we play those back sometimes is an issue. So we work on that. And then once you can play it back, can we get it digitized? That's the big question that involves a lot of grant writing, it's a very boring part of the project, but very central and crucial. And sure. then the next issue is copyright. And so legitimately, you know, someone featured on a recording, unless they signed a waiver, can hold rights to royalties 
or even perceived royalties lost. So even mm. if the station never profits off of it, if they distribute someone's voice, uh, that person could say that they could have gotten royalties off of oh. it. So what happens is what we do is we make it available for research on site at the Library of Congress. And then it, uh, some of the distribution concerns or legalities are uh, mitigated uh, for that. Right. So, uh, And then there's another technology, they call it like a portal system, where you can uh, actually go to public sites in other states and then through access codes, you could listen to these kinds of things. So there's a lot of laws. <laughs> it's the Library of Congress. Library of Congress actually creates copyright law and then manages it, as, as you know. So we have to be really careful about that with the project. Uh, but there are opportunities to hear these histories um, through libraries and archives. Fascinating stuff. We're talking. Well, Josh, we thank you so much because uh, the book, again, is The Shadow of the New Deal, Victory of Public Broadcasting. Got a lot of good history there that uh, kind of tells people, hey, you know, you flip on the station, whether it be TV or radio, and you assume it's just, well, it's public broadcasting. Well, <laughs> it had to be developed. It had to, you know, win over a lot of folks. And uh, you've got the story on it, Josh, and we thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care, Josh. We'll see you now.